This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Drive Time News Blast. 30 minutes, 50 for subscribers of news of the day from a perspective of truth, liberty, and justice. This is Monica Perez. And I'm Brad Binkley. So before we get to our top story, I think I should clarify a few things. Um, I think most people have heard by now that this is going to be my last week co-hosting the DNB. If you haven't heard, please go back and listen to the deepest dive of the day for Thursday, April 14th. But there does seem to be a little bit of confusion as to what's next for us. So let me assure you, I am not totally disappearing. I just can't do a full-length daily show in real time as we have been. But Binkley will continue with the DNB that you know and love for sure. I'm going to spin off the deepest dive of the day into a mini podcast and drop it in the free feed every morning by 5 a.m. So you can have it in time to take a shower with it or shave or put on your makeup or whatever. Um, and I'll also continue to do interviews and put them in the free feed as well. But And I'm going to take a week or so off. So please look for that content beginning around May 10th, that second week of May. But Binkley isn't taking any time off. He will continue on with the DNB in the afternoon, and he will continue to put out plenty of premium content, including the DNB XR. And best of all, Binkley and I will continue to join forces on rockfin.com slash propaganda report with deep dives live, as well as our other content, including the DNB, the deepest dive of the day, and plenty of interviews. And of course, at Rockfin, you get all the exclusive content from all the other great creators there as well. So watch out for these changes. And we do hope and trust you continue to enjoy all the great propaganda report content to come. And with that, let us get to the top story of the day. Binkley, take it away. Okay, these top stories today, the top two, have a similar theme going on. The first one, Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. She testified under oath for three hours this past Friday at what's called a disqualification hearing that was focused on whether or not she is constitutionally barred from running for or holding office in Georgia or I guess anywhere because of her role in what they're calling the January 6th, quote, <laughs> insurrection. This makes her the first lawmaker to be questioned yes. under oath about this situation. It's some interesting elements to this case. The candidacy challenge, it was initiated by a group of Georgia voters. So they find some voters in the state and these activist groups will back them. And particularly there was a legal advocacy group and a group called Our Revolution, which you might remember. <laughs> Is that progressive? Like our democracy. Yeah, it, that's the progressive <laughs> pack that was spun out of the Bernie Sanders supporters from January 16th that I believe are the ones who nominated AOC to run for office. If I, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure that that is that group. And what they're hoping to do is they're hoping to stop her from running. They're hoping to say she's disqualified. And then what they will do after that, if this is to be successful, which I don't think they really have much merit to say that it is, but they will then try and do that to other Republicans. They're trying to do it to the, the 
Cawthorn guy, the, the kid, the guy in the wheelchair in North Carolina, and they will try and do it to Trump as well if they succeed here. Now, the legal case that they're trying to make, it revolves around a Civil War era provision of the 14th Amendment, which says that any American official who takes an oath to uphold the Constitution is disqualified from holding any future office if they had engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to enemies thereof. Wasn't that whole thing like all the rebels were disenfranchised and couldn't hold office? My guess is that it was put in there because the actual laws that were the disbarment, disenfranchisement of those guys would otherwise have been unconstitutional if there wasn't a carve out that you could take those rights away from them if they had engaged in the Civil War. Yes, and that is what they're relying on because obviously we know that that was the second Civil War, basically, at least the way that they try and <laughs> frame it. They're working on it anyway. They really are. So that's the legal case they're making, but there's a couple problems with that legal case. One is that no one is being charged with insurrection, let alone convicted of insurrection. Like officials, or what about all those people who are no, on Nobody's trial being charged stuff? with insurrection. What, what are they? Do they're you being charged that? with. A lot of them are being charged like with disorderly conduct. Yes. Okay, got it. Yeah, there's got no. It, got it. Got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't even have that. Apparently, that's not even a requirement, though. So you can still try and get someone for insurrection, even though nobody's actually been charged if there was with no insurrection. Insurrection. Right. Yeah. So that's one problem with it. Another problem with it is the lack of use and the fact that the judge has agreed with most of the objections that Marjorie Taylor Greene's lawyer has presented and told the, I guess, prosecutors, I don't even know what you call them in this instance of this hearing, but told them that they're they're pushing the envelope here, kind of telling them they need to back off. And all they're doing is attacking her rhetoric. And they are reading out her social media post and saying, did you like this <laughs> post? Did you like that post? What did you know? They're trying to establish that she knew what was going to happen. That she was confident that, she, that it was going to lead to violence and that she helped organize it beforehand. That's the standard they're trying to present, and they're not doing a good job of presenting it. Even commentators on CNN and articles from the left are saying that they really have a, a, a big hill to climb to actually get this to happen, to prevent her from being able to run for office. However, even though most people are in agreement that the burden of proof is a standard that the, the challengers of her candidacy are unlikely to meet, there is a little wrinkle here. And that wrinkle is who gets the final say in whether or not she gets to run. And it's not the judge. The judge makes a recommendation, and he's going to make that recommendation in the next couple of weeks. And then he passes that recommenda recommendation on to someone, which is the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. <laughs> so Brad Raffensperger, who is a Republican in name only, is the guy is... A deep state shill, no doubt. I think he's probably linked to the CIA. I think his family probably is based on some strange history or lack of about his family. And he is the one who has helped cover up any election discrepancies. And I wonder when this gets to his desk and he gets to make that final decision, what will he do? I think that if he were to actually say she cannot run and set that precedent that they will then try to apply – that he will have no chance to win Secretary of State again if he wants to win. But perhaps, perhaps they promised him something better, something he wants more. So we'll see what happens there. That is interesting how much power he is getting in this instance. But that's only if she's like, if the judge recommends, right? Everything I've read is that he's going to, the judge is going to pass his recommendation on to, to Raffensperger. I would assume that the judge would have to say, maybe you should do it, but maybe he can go against the judge. I'm not 100% sure on that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it is. 
And what they're doing here, too. So that's like Trump is like a stand in or she's like a stand in for Trump. So she is (laughs) the proxy Trump in this case. Right. We have another proxy Trump situation going on last night and it's going to continue to be going on. There was the Georgia Republican primary governor debate. So Governor Kemp of Georgia, who Trump has had a lot of conflict with because he believes Kemp was also helping cover up some of the election stuff, which I would agree in some circumstances. He is being challenged by David Perdue, who lost the Senate race to John Ossoff in, in the runoff. And I really think he didn't fight hard enough to get that seat back. That was crazy. Well, he has made his position known about what his campaign is going to be. And it might as well be Donald Trump's campaign. It's like testing Donald Trump's campaign this year before 2024. David Perdue? David Perdue's opening, no his opening line. And this is already getting national attention because he was trending on Twitter because of his opening line, which was, let me be very clear. This is the first thing he said. This election in 2020 was rigged and stolen. <clears throat> and that's what he talked about the entire time. So he took the position of what yeah, but he should have fought it because it was his election that was stolen. Well, he, he claims should have been fighting it because that down ballot, he was down ballot on all those ballots that were fraudulent. I mean, I oh, I can't ask Garland that probably once a month. Like, he he claimed that he he claimed that he did ask the governor to do a special session. He had standing. Right. Garland maybe didn't have standing. I think Garland did have standing, but that's what Garland lost on standing. I don't think there is any way you could argue that David Perdue did not have standing. And that was Kemp's defense to because basically he blamed Kemp on giving Ossoff, he said, you're the reason John Ossoff is in office right now. And what was his, what was, what what did he mean by that? He told him that you basically kowtowed and you gave the liberals and Stacey Abrams the election by not investigating the claims of fraud. He started citing off some of the, the evidence, some of the stuff that Garland's talked about. I know, but I can't, don't don't you remember how many times I asked him, why isn't David Perdue the one who's suing here? And he said, well, I think they're pursuing it. I'm like, yeah, but that guy, because he was, he was on that ballot. He was personally injured by that. He absolutely, and he, I think that the margin there was well below how many votes they thought were could be reversed. Yep, and that was kind of Kemp's defense. And that defense. was so much more important. See, that's what mm-hmm. I my argument was. That it was so much more. It's so much more important that the Senate is tied than that. Biden's in the White House. I know people are don't believe that, but I absolutely believe. Well, yeah, he said he said that Kemp, you gave the Senate to the Republican to Stacey Abrams and the Republicans, and you're right. He didn't Democrats do that. And, do what? You mean Democrats? You oh, did I say Republicans? Yes, Stacey, yeah, yes, the Democrats. Thank you. Now he said a lot of the things that. You would probably agree with. I agreed with some of them. And Kemp didn't really address the specific issues of it. So he talked about the missing ballots. He talked about the signatures. A lot of the stuff Garland's talked about. So he's done his homework. And he stayed on message the entire time. He brought it back to Kemp being the reason that Stacey Abrams and the Democrats have control. And he kept throwing Stacey Abrams in there. But Kemp wouldn't. So Kemp was in this position where he did not want to appear to be a 
big lie perpetrator. So now now you have da- David Perdue as, quote, the big lie candidate, which is how they'll frame it. So he's the Trump stand-in. And then you have Kemp wanting to not sound like that, but also not wanting to tick off people who believe there was problems mm-hmm. with the election because he needs them to vote for him when he runs against Abrams, it's, if he it wins. It really seems to have some – it's still – it's becoming this little subculture. I would actually be right, surprised. Like rallies and stuff? Yeah. I would be surprised – if they actually did count the votes, I would have a hard time believing that Kemp would beat Purdue. I, I think that probably yeah. more Republicans in Georgia think that there was problems with the election than don't. And I think that's why he's banking on this campaign strategy. And Kemp, since he didn't want to talk about that, every time that Purdue brought it up, Kemp would dance around it and then shift to what he really did want to talk about. And that was Stacey Abrams and how he's the only one who can beat Stacey Abrams. Again. And, yeah. He could have beat her the first time by or she could have beaten him the first time by pointing out what a what a um, incompetent or corrupt secretary of state he was like this stuff. These fights aren't aren't tooth and nail. They make it look like it, but they don't really do what they can do to defeat the other guy. Like it makes that's what lends uh, like uh, they don't at all. Absolutely right. He would have been talking about the burning the flag and all that stuff we uncovered if they were serious about it. So would Purdue if he really wanted to do that. But. Since Abrams ran against Kemp, we were the only ones talking about her when that first started, you know. Now, she has become a multimillionaire. That's been shown. She has she has become president of the world on Star Trek, and she has become <laughs> yeah. one of the most famous people in politics. So She's like the Paris Hilton of politics. She doesn't yeah. actually do anything. She doesn't right. actually have a job, but she's like famous for being famous. And Kemp says he can stop her. He's the one that helped catapult her to this position she's in right now. But I thought it was funny the way that Kemp framed it. So Kemp opened up by saying that we're in a fight for the soul of the state, which is a playoff of what Biden says. We're in a fight for the soul of the nation. I don't know if I'd be using Biden's <laughs> words. Of course, he's talking about fighting Stacey Abrams and not fighting Purdue. But he said that him and his wife and his kids will work every day to make sure Stacey Abrams is never our governor and never our next president. Him and his wife and his kids will do that. And then he goes on to really emphasize it by saying that I wake up every morning thinking about how I'm going to stop Stacey Abrams from being governor and being our next president. I don't know if I'd be saying I wake up in bed every morning thinking about Stacey Abrams <laughs> if your wife is watching, but it's just a little bit obsessive the way he's talking about it. I would think people would want him to focus on issues and not just Stacey Abrams all the time, but I guess he's trying to hope people will want that to be the issue, the cultural issue anyway. I thought Purdue did a better job in the debate. It is going to get some attention on this vote thing. Now, whether it's good or bad, because he because Purdue is going to be the face of it, the proxy war with Trump trying to maybe use it in 2024. And we'll see how the public reacts to it. I really wish we could get a fair vote because I would like to I would like to see if more Republicans believe that there's problems with the election that don't. And I think that they probably do. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I do want to say that the... The Harrison Deal death, his Kemp's daughter's boyfriend, Harrison Deal, who was going to 
um, a yeah. Leffler, I think a Leffler campaign stop and his car basically exploded. He got like rear-ended and there was no other damage anywhere else. I mean, it was a really fishy story. And then the investigator who was really uh, a really seasoned investigator ended up going home and killing himself or something. Like it was really a crazy story. Yeah. And when that kind of stuff happens, you have to, I mean, you have to at least give consideration to the idea that these, that these things do happen and that sometimes they're done to send a message. You know, the mob is not the only mob. <laughs> the government's also a mob and that they, it really defines or restricts what these guys, you know, how far they're going to go. It may make sure it's always on the surface and that it's, that it's kabuki and not ever, never gets real because looks, you know, you want real? You got real. There's right. too much power at stake. Yeah, right. They're not going to let that be up for grabs. Yeah. So, and there's just taking that kind of an idea internationally. We've got our hands in plenty of pies abroad, but one place that we have always kind of interfered with or tried to interfere with is Haiti. And uh, there's just like a few little updates from there was an assassination in Haiti in January, very shortly or February, shortly after Biden took office. The president, Moise, was assassinated. He had already kind of rounded up some people who he had discovered an assassination plot prior to that. He had smoking gun evidence that the U.S. was behind it. And now I and there's nothing in me that thinks that we weren't behind the actual assassination. Now, there were a bunch of Colombians who supposedly did the deed, but they had kind of um, used Miami as a launching pad. I mean, there were definitely U.S. connections there. So I noticed a couple of stories about Haiti in the news over the weekend. One was a Haiti assassination suspect could be extradited to Miami from Jamaica any day. So Sir Tim in the tweet tweets did correct very uh, cleverly not extradited, extracted. And the idea is this guy probably did have something to do with the assassination, but because we did too, you got to get that guy out of there before he's tortured and tells the truth or something. So what this guy's story was, he was a Haitian senator. His name was John Joseph. He was arrested in Jamaica, having escaped from Haiti into Jamaica, but illegally his, he was in some, had to go through some court appearances about that. And, uh, allegedly the U S and Haiti asked for him to be extradited, but he did not fight the U S extradition. Now, Jamaica denies having received an extradition request from Haiti, but the Haitians say they absolutely did. In any case, they're handing him over to the U.S., where I'm sure we can control that narrative, no doubt about it. And that in the reporting is that in Miami is using or the U.S. uses this very broad uh, idea of criminal prosecution, criminal justice, that they can actually prosecute crimes that happen in other countries. And they're saying just based on the fact that some tendrils of the crime emanated from or took root in in Miami. But uh, it's really it does. It defies a kind of sovereignty uh concept but that that's nothing new to us anyway so i think that they're just locking this guy down in the u.s so that he doesn't come to justice or spill the beans apparently the haitians wanted to ask him what uh what really went on like the real story and he probably knows the answer supposedly he held meetings at his home he rented the cars that were used that night in the assassination attempt so he probably does know 
what was what. But then another story came out that our State Department is working hard to get a new election in Haiti. They want to get rid of this guy, Henry, who was the handpicked successor to Moise. They apparently there's tons of unrest because of gang violence and economic problems, kidnapping, all of which we could be imposing on them in order to bring them to the table. But basically, 27 countries are converging on Haiti right now to try to get them to have new elections. And it was kind of like a very weird quote from this state uh, State Department guy. The only way we get out of this this is elections and a new government. Uh, the U.S. diplomat to Haiti told the Miami Herald, "We need the people of Haiti to democratically select their leaders." And I just think it's funny because selection always implies that somebody else is doing it. When people say like we are, it's not a democratic election. These guys have been selected, not elected. I think that's kind of interesting. And I believe that we're just kind of trying to give them a short list of people that we would find acceptable for them to run Haiti. But clearly, I mean, I think we, we have for a very long time and are continuing to try to control Haiti. And I, and I actually, if I had to guess, I think Henry is probably legit and he's probably putting up a good fight and the people are probably behind him. And we're ginning up the protests and all that. But remember, it all, and it sounds like an invasion to me, too, because they're sending SWAT, SWAT equipment in there. They're supporting their police. And to me, that's us going in there to control all those mechanisms so that they can lock down the country themselves. Who's going to take the orders from that? And don't forget that if, uh, if memory serves, Haiti... Maybe the Haitian earthquake was the first time ever the expression build back better was used. And oh. I would like to say, how did that go? How, how did yeah. that go? <laughs> yeah. Well, doesn't appear to have gone well unless that's the way they wanted it to go. Well, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't look like it, it didn't go well either way. It didn't go well for the Haitians. And it looks like the control, the people who want to control it have never really gotten a firm grasp on it yet. Well, Something else could be building back better pretty soon, and that could be Twitter. Mm-hmm. As Elon Musk, they've reached a deal. Where, oh, they have? Yeah. They're going to sell really? it to him. The Twitter board voted unanimously to wow. sell to him. And this happened after he showed that he had financial backing, which that financial backing is coming from Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, and several other banks that promised to lend $25 billion, and he is putting up the other portion of it, I believe. And so once they realized he was serious, well, actually, they were forced to take it seriously because he started going to their shareholders, and their shareholders started pressuring them to look at his deal because they wanted him to do it. And once that happened, they negotiated into the night, and ultimately, they did come to a deal, and they sold it to him for $44 billion, and it will be finalized around by the end of the year, this says, and he said today that free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. He said it has tremendous potential, and he looks forward to working with the community of users to unlock it. So uh, maybe I missed it. Do you know? So how much of it is he going to own? What percentage do you know is he going to own? Probably the plurality. He'll have the largest ownership. I think so. Yeah. And then I'm wondering what what a premium it was over the trading price from, you know, a week ago or whatever. Like if it says how much of a premium he's paying. That he is paying. He was paying them. Yeah. I mentioned that last week. $54 a share. Yeah. Yeah, Something like that. So... This didn't 
pop up until recently, right? So not more than a month ago. I don't remember these rumors. It looks like it was trading just below $42 a share. Um, and then I'm, I'm guessing that it was the, on April 4th that he made this call because it went shot right up. So if they're paying like 54 and it was 40, whatever that is, there's like a 30%. Yeah. Premium. Yeah, so a lot of them are getting a premium. I guess that's why they went because a lot of the board members went and pressured the not the board members, the shareholders. Yes, that's what I was wondering. That is actually what I was wondering. If he's paying an exorbitant premium over the share price that these guys were, you know, way over market value. Yeah, then they're going to take that money, and And you don't need to get hostile. And I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen with this because we have the Netflix example. So Netflix. Had their bill, one of their billionaires sell off all of his stock, and it made their oh, their is stock. Is that why it crashed? Made was it just it because plummet. they changed, uh, made a little difference to the model. No, that happened after it oh. went down. It, yeah, and this guy sold off because they were kind of tanking anyway. And a lot of the story, and Elon actually was somebody who was pointing this out or, or leading this messaging, is that the woke mob. And woke culture is what ruined Netflix. And he's talking about all of the shows on there that are just, there's very much woke. You know, actually, what I hate about Netflix is that their original stuff has gratuitous and gory violence. Every It's just so bad for the soul. It's evil, in my opinion. Like right. that stuff, I have no tolerance for it whatsoever. I won't even watch anything Netflix original because I was a couple of times punched in the face in the first 30 seconds with somebody's literally like brains blowing out or whatever. And I just said, you know what? I'm not doing this. It's a lot of the woke social justice things that they have now that are on their, usually on their featured top 10. They, they push a lot of that on you. And that is what the narrative is anyway as to why they failed, why their subscribers dropped off. I don't know if that's the actual reason. I know that I got tired of it. I, I don't look at Netflix anymore because everything I see is like that. And that is an example of living up to your ESG standards, what Netflix was doing. Equality-based programming, the documentaries that are 1619 Project documentaries, everything was meeting those ESG standards. And that could be an example of it failing, if, if we're going with what the narrative is saying. The ESG model where you focus on the stakeholders instead of your shareholders causes you to lose one of your biggest shareholders and causes the stock to plummet. Then we have Twitter, on the other hand here, who also was doing ESG stuff and then Musk jumps in, who tweets about how bad ESG is all the time. And so I think that what we see here is we see someone who is putting the shareholders first. He goes to the shareholders, gets the shareholders to pressure them. The board caves in because they don't want to lose it by some other means or have it tank like Netflix did. Maybe if, if Elon were to sell all his shares, if he did not buy it, perhaps there'd be a it, similar effect. It's amazing what, I mean, Netflix, like that is really shocking. It looks like. October, they were, it was trading at 700 and yeah. it's down to 200. Right. I mean, that's just, that doesn't even make sense. So, what I'm wondering if we're going to see here is I'm wondering if, it, if Twitter is being set up to fail spectacularly. I was wondering if what the setup is here. So that they can demonstrate that when you put profits over people and you put shareholder capitalism over stakeholder capitalism, that a company will fail. Whereas you could argue that the opposite is going on with Netflix. Where and, you know, but what's it going to do for the censorship? He what says is, like, he's going to open it up. Yeah, off. I think that he opens it up. And if he truly opens it up, like he says, he says he's going to make it private and he's going to really secure the, the public town square. And I think if that happens, then it could turn into something like 
I don't know, Getter. I don't, I don't know. I'm not on all those platforms, but it could get infested with some of the worst type of stuff possible. Not that it's not already infested with the worst type of stuff possible, but well, that would be cool. an opening that would lead it to failing. They could really junk it up, too. So yeah. so did you mention I heard you saying like his backers. Did you do you have the can you name names on that? Yeah, it's Morgan Stanley. Bank of America. Oh, are they providing debt? Says that, that yes, they have lent it's him debt. So he yeah. doesn't have debt financing. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my guess is it's non-recourse. It's just secured by the asset itself. So if he drives it into the ground, that's that. I'd like to know how much the debt to, you know, how much actual dollars he's putting uh, into it. Yeah, I can tell you. It says Morgan Stanley and... These other lenders are going to be offering $13 billion in debt financing, plus another $12.5 billion in loans against his stock in Tesla. Oh, and wow. he is adding about wow. $20 million in yeah. his own that equity like financing. Putting his money where his mouth is. Now, I don't consider it to be his money because of all the subsidies and everything that he's gotten over the years. And he's definitely a guy who owes for the opportunities he's had and all that government money. Like, somebody is definitely... I th- I think somebody's behind him, and if they're telling him to do this, and he may end up losing fifty million dollars, it's fifty billion, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Billion. Well, well yeah, not quite yeah, fifty billion, but yeah, it's around. It's that's like forty. Too much. Some, yeah, it's a lot. You know, that's that's a lot of money. Like yeah. if he's if he's losing twenty billion dollars, if he, you know what I mean, like. That would be a lot. I, I hope it works. I, I hope it's great. But, drive it into the ground. Huh? Right. I hope it's great, but I, I am not optimistic. I'm sure to get a lot weirder. And all, a lot of the conversation underneath the tweets are, what is ESG? What does that mean? What does it say? So there's a lot of public debate, pub, or as Edward Bernays would call it, public education of people learning about ESG and then picking a side on where they should be about ESG. I think that this is about ESG standards, what I ultimately I think is what get, this gets down to. Yeah, really interesting. He's going to take it private. That's very interesting to me. All right. Well, we have a little bit more to talk about. Yes, I went really long today. That's right. Before we get to our deepest dive of the day, where we'll try to get to the bottom of if there is a perfect storm brewing around food supplies, I want to tell you what we're going to talk about in the XR. The mental health impact of COVID was a feature, not a bug. And Hunter Biden demanded what? From (laughs) whom? And of course, before we get to all that, a big thanks to the sponsor of today's show. I love True Hemp Science. Please check out TrueHempScience.com. They are a stalwart sponsor of the Propaganda Report. And if you, so if you want to support us, please uh, support also our sponsors, such as TrueHempScience.com. And if you want to support us directly, you can join Rockfin.com slash Propaganda Report, where you will see all of our content, Binkley and I, or most of it anyway, as well as the Rockfin exclusive deep dive that Binkley and I do at least every month. And you also get all the exclusive content from the many, many great creators on Rockfin. So check out rockfin.com slash propaganda report. And now on to the deepest dive of the day. So there have been, I think, uh, if memory serves, there's been something like 16 fires in food production facilities since the beginning of this year. Did you hear that? We've talked about it. We've uh, I mentioned it last week. I, it was uh, there was a big article about it, an activist post, which I'll link in the show notes. Just going through listing them. It's been all over Twitter. I think even Tucker Carlson was talking about it. The FBI has been also 
warning of ransomware gangs going after what they call a lucrative but but unexpected target where um they are hitting agricultural and food companies cyber attacks like that kind of thing comes together as a perfect storm to me where you're having fires you're having already food shortages because of covid and drought and transportation issues then you have cyber attacks on top of that which i always think you know that a lot of them are real for sure but it's very easy to mask a government operation or a deep state operation or even you know, some globalist plot there's money there they can certainly launch those kinds of things um and you know so i started thinking about the fires I was wondering if it's just this trend I've noticed about urban fires on the rise, building fires, um, the Home Depot building fire. Now is this Azure, Azure food production on fire. And I didn't know if it was part of that. There was another Philadelphia fire over the weekend where people died, three kids. And at first it was reported their mother, then it was reported the father. And I looked into that and is Philadelphia burning, you know, and, but they, it, this year they've had like 20, 35, well, it's only halfway through the year. And I think they've already had as many deaths this year that they did in all told in 2019, but it's still not totally um, beyond the realm of possibility, how many fire deaths they've had. So um, I just, I, I don't think that's it. I, and I started thinking it was something bigger. And I really want to get to the bottom of the food, the food supply issue. Like, is it, are they meaning just to panic us? Or is there really going to be, uh, you know, the Ice Age farmer talks about a solar minimum. And I see the drought. I think that they're imposing that on purpose. I just wanted to get to the bottom of the food supply issue. And Dean tweeted at me this thing I don't even know about. It's a it's called the food chain reaction game. Yeah, I'd heard of that. Yeah, I hadn't heard of this by one of these kind of scenario companies, CNA, which originally stood for, I think, the Center for Naval Analytics or something. And I looked into those and I couldn't find but I couldn't look at every single person who worked there to see if they were all plugged into the Esalen Institute or Stanford Research Institute, the way the Global Business Network that does the other scenarios does. So they are obviously highly connected with the government and the defense industry and all of that. But they did. But this this particular scenario was paid for by the Center for American Progress, the mm. World Wildlife Fund, Cargill, which has one hundred and fifteen billion dollars annually in food revenue, Mars, which I assume they mean Mars, like the candy and pet food company and this and CNA. So what they did was they looked at. They looked at a scenario was it 2015? I, I think it was 2015. They looked at a scenario that was spanning 10 years, starting 2020 to 2030. And they said that demographic changes, climate pressure, and political crises had combined to threaten the food supply. That they, beginning in 2020, there were lower than average food stocks. There were rising food prices. There were weather-related disasters. And there was social unrest. And that all contributed to this uh, food food supply chain issue. And 
So they were supposed, these are the factors that started off the first round. And then they got all the experts, like the real top experts from dozens of countries. And they had them make decisions that actually affected the later round. So the first round, they were given this crisis. And then they were thinking about how to do it. So, so after the first round, they didn't do much. And then things got worse in the second round. And then they started being more proactive and it went like four or five rounds. And, uh, so for me, so I look at this and you could, if you like believed in the, in the benevolence of the overlords think, well, these guys, this giant food company and these so-called like environmental philanthropies, whatever foundations really care about the food supply. They really care about us. They really want to build, you know, to stress out the system to see how to really prepare for it. But to me, these guys are the ones who centralize everything, who want to control everything. And the more you centralize stuff, the more vulnerable you make it to shocks, the less give and take you get from like people demanding and driving um, productive resources into supply. You insulate, you know, the more you take this stuff out of the pricing mechanism, the more you insulate it from actually being able to take care of itself. So they went through all of this and they ended up having a few conclusions they said, uh, glo- so one thing that I believe, now maybe I'm wrong, but it says that the players made significant commitments as a result of how we designed the game, but they did not have the tension of budgetary constraints. So to me, huh. <laughs> I know, like that completely, ta- that's, that's, if you're not looking at the costs of these things, you're not actually looking at real choices and you know you feel like if you had an unlimited amount of money to spend you could probably control everything really so so what they came up with was over they all kind of agreed on everything which was global and regional cooperation was essential and that they wanted to build more resilience into the system so that's a very highly controlled uh, approach. They want to acknowledge the relationship between water, energy, and food security. So that brings in the whole climate stuff. And water is definitely going to be weaponized. And this idea that, like what I observe, that they're implementing drought. I mean, water shouldn't be this scarce. And it is. that that. So a lot of what I see here is them identifying the levers of control, the things that they could actually implement to create panic, to actually interfere with the food supplies, to see how people would interact with that. Not because they want to save us, but because they want to use these levers. So they did say climate and unpredictability or climate unpredictability was the biggest challenge. And I would say that's why they want to control the weather because climate is unpredictable. It's not because there's climate change and all that. They really are thinking about the reality of it, I think. And uh, they they all agreed that there was a need for timely, relevant, and credible global information on food security drivers and indicators. So this is what Ice Age Farmer told us and Allison McDowell told us, that every last tomato would have would be on the blockchain. And then they said that they expressed concern about extreme weather events, food insecurity, and major refugee movements that would contribute to conflict. And again, for me, that's that, that's them figuring out how to potentially increase conflicts if that's what they need to get these systems into place. They wanted to talk about um, the... They wanted to talk about how to what what to do to build in the resilience, and they talked about having 
They promoted the position that domestic agricultural production, expansion, and supply chain improvements would include seed development, infrastructure investment, technology transfer, biofuel policies, insurance pregnant programs, and that it would benefit, benefit the world to help alleviate global food price pressure. But what does that mean? If they, this is Cargill, right? It's a huge ag company and they're suggesting that the government pay for seed development, infrastructure, tech, biofuel policies. They're recommending biofuel policies. Biofuel policies means they sell more. They're the ones who create the bio in the biofuel. They want, if they are really looking to what even went back to, to the first Ford, Henry Ford, who said you could make the fuel out of crops. So it's definitely possible. And that that is just another way for the government to subsidize these costs. If they're saying this will lower global food prices, yes, because it, it lowers your costs and you will definitely benefit from that. So I smell a rat with all of this. And then their big grand conclusion was we need a global carbon tax. Very interesting. They always seem to have some foreknowledge or foreplanning of these events that we are experiencing now. I did hear Ice Age Farmer talk about this. I think he talks about this a good bit. So he might. Oh, yeah. This is his thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Interesting stuff. We got any shout outs? Um, Do I have any shout outs? Not today. All right. Well, you guys can find your Drive Time News Blast every weekday afternoon at thepropreport.com or your podcasting platform or app. And if you want access to that extra content that we post when we post a DMB, you can go to patreon.com slash propaganda report and sign up there. We will talk to you guys tomorrow or in the DMB XR. Have a fantastic rest of your day.